One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Jonathan Morgan. He's the founder and CEO of Yonder. If that name sounds familiar, we had their CMO, Lisa Roberts, on the show for episode 216, where we talked about how information spreads in online conversations. Yonder, as a reminder, is an AI company that helps Fortune 500 communications teams identify and counteract online disinformation about issues that matter to their organization. Prior to Yonder, Jonathan developed AI and combat social media radicalization with DARPA and served as an advisor to the U.S. State Department. On the show today, we talk about misinformation, radicalization, and the assault on the capital of the United States that happened in January. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jonathan as we dissect these issues about radicalization and what it means for marketers. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, I, this should be a fun conversation. I know we had Lisa Roberts, your company CMO on the show last year at some point. It was for listeners. If you want to go back and listen, it was episode 216. Um, and we talked a lot about how information spreads in online conversations. So it's nice to have the company back, but it's always equally fun to talk to a founder and a CEO. Thank you. I mean, you know, Lisa's fantastic. I'm sure she's already covered the territory, said all of the smart things. And so, 
your listeners can just assume that <laughs> that I'll do my best. I'll probably pale in comparison, but I'll do my best to keep up with Lisa. I like how you, you're managing expectations. You're, you're ready. You're, you're ready for public <laughs> markets. You can manage your expectations low and, and exceed them. It's awesome. <laughs> Before we get too far down this, just help listeners, those that didn't listen to the prior episode, like give us a sense of like, what is Yonder? What do you guys do? Yeah. So Yonder is a company that is focused on understanding how information spreads across the internet. And so our technology is designed to identify all of the agenda-driven groups that coordinate to capture the public's attention. And sometimes they do that in ways that are manipulative. They hijack the public's attention. And then sometimes they do it in ways that are just part of the normal social media discourse. They coordinate their activity. They're hyperactive. They're hyper-focused. They target individual users who can yeah, spread their message to a more mainstream audience. And, and we help uh, communications teams understand these dynamics so that they can develop better messaging strategy proactively detect when there might be a social media incident, basically get out in front of narratives so that they can have a, a better strategy for aligning their teams, communicating effectively, and really making sure that they're communicating their brand's purpose to the market in an environment that's pretty divisive and volatile. So the short version is that uh, we're here to identify misinformation, disinformation, and then the opportunities that come from an agenda-driven internet. I know you've got a lot of tech behind the scenes is kind of helping to do some of that mining. How and where did you guys get started? I, I've heard, and if I remember correctly, there was government, state department type high tech stuff involved. <laughs> but but you can tell me how, how and where you got started. That's about right. I mean, actually, the, the the slightly longer version is that my introduction to the social internet was almost 20 years ago. So pre-Twitter, I was involved in building early online communities, uh, writing for kind of niche publications in the early days of things like blogging when that was still novel and new. And then that coupled with a, a kind of a, a background in technology and then ultimately machine learning led to trying to understand how those dynamics, those kind of early naive community dynamics of the internet were being in some cases manipulated or um, had unintended consequences, like pulling people into filter bubbles and echo chambers, and that led to things like radicalization. So because that was a relatively novel space to do research in, the the research that me and some uh, some colleagues conducted ended up being pretty high profile, and that led to advising the State Department on how they could think about countering the impact of things like online radicalization around the world. Um, and then my co-founder had kind of a, a similar background where he was focused on something called countering violent extremism. Um, and his background was also in government. He worked in the intelligence community for a long time. And so kind of from different perspectives, we were really focused on what are the mechanics that lead people to have kind of allow that like vulnerable people get pulled into um, these kind of corrosive or, or destructive online movements. And then what's the impact on the, on the broader population? Gotcha. And when did you figure out that there was a commercial application to this, like outside of government and policy setting, if you will? Kind of once any phenomenon, like once it ends up being repeatable, and then it looks like a technology problem. And I think when even from the early days of understanding the behaviors of groups that would coordinate to really disseminate extremist propaganda, um, groups like ISIS, you know, um, so we kind of applied that same model to other groups that were operating online. And, and what we found in the run-up to the 2016 elections was that there was actually what looked like state-sponsored disinformation that was running the same playbook. And so we had two examples now, both in government, both with kind of a security focus, but two examples of groups doing the same thing, running the same playbook, similar signals, similar behaviors. And we started to get the idea that 
maybe this was actually just how the internet worked. And so, sure, there was these bad actors that were kind of exploiting that, but that, but really the vulnerability that they were exploiting was that our entire social ecosystem, like the, the modern internet basically was built on a fundamental premise, and that's that there's there's wisdom in the crowd, quote unquote. And it turns out that if you value crowds, you inadvertently value mobs. Um, and so if you can if you can galvanize a crowd, you know, and you can you can point them at something and you can get them all excited and doing the same thing at the same time, it turns out that you overwhelm the system and you can have an undue amount of influence over the way that the public talks about whatever. And so, you know, some groups have discovered this explicitly and they 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 use these mechanics intentionally to spread their idea. But a lot of people just sort of stumble on this because they have an intuition about how the internet works and they're trying to get attention for whatever their agenda is. And so because this is pervasive and it's really baked into the business model of the internet, at least the modern internet, um, we realize that anybody who has an interest in the public discourse, so whether that's people who want to understand how issues are discussed at a geopolitical level, or whether you're a brand that has values and you're communicating those values, you want to you want to make sure that you're developing an affinity with your consumers who kind of have an expectation that they vote with their wallet and they, they're building relationships with brands and they're building a lot of trust. All of those things really rely on a healthy, authentic public discourse, or at least being able to engage in a discourse, navigating the complexities of all of these agenda-driven groups, trying to get attention for whatever they're focused on. And so a lot of times these groups hijack a brand, just like they hijack a, a geopolitical idea. And, and that is a really essential thing for communications teams to understand. And once we realized how pervasive this was, it became pretty clear that there was a commercial opportunity as well. You mentioned mobs, and we are here at the beginning of 2021. There was angry mobs and riots on the Capitol. I live just outside of D.C. We know that those groups and people were having conversations and organizing to bring, you know, obviously harm to others in the U.S. What what should we know about this effort? I mean, you kind of described this, how information flows already and how this Really, it seems like it's just a natural extension of the internet and how it works, but maybe you can break it down a little bit for me. It's interesting that you bring up the the recent events at the Capitol. I think that as as people were trying to understand how and why a group of people would attack the Capitol, one of the foundations of our of our democracy, you know, this kind of the seat of our democracy, and especially people who in a lot of ways, you know, were self-styled patriots, like a lot of it really was cognitive dissonance, you know? And I think what was interesting to, to point out, and then a lot of researchers did this as they were watching video and, you know, looking at images of the event is that people were kind of proudly displaying their commitment to what had started as hyper online, hyper engaged uh, conspiracy theory groups. And so there were people flying flags that were associated with anonymous web forums like 4chan and people who were had slogans on their t-shirts and their clothing that were associated with QAnon, which is kind of a bizarre conspiracy theory that was very much on the fringes, but has since, of course, you know, come to the public's attention. So I think what the attack demonstrated was that these groups, even when they seem bizarre, even when they seem kind of wacky, even when they seem like they're very much on the fringe, they really do motivate people to take action. And so th- that was an extreme action in that people were willing to, you know, to commit a crime, you know, and injure other people. Obviously, you know, sadly, uh, people even died as a result of the attack on that cap. So I think, you know, that's a, that's a really a- extreme example of this, but those are the same people who are motivated to, to message a, a public official hundreds or thousands of times or to spread a rumor about a corporate executive hundreds or thousands of times, and they can be relentless and they're highly motivated. And it's because 
unfortunately, like most of these people earnestly believe in what they're what they're pursuing. And I think in, in the mainstream, we can look at that and go, that's a, you know, they're, they're just wrong. Like those are, those are conspiracy theories. They, they don't know what they're talking about, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not, that's not true from their point of view. And so I think it's, I think it's an indication of how far down a rabbit hole folks can go on the internet and what, what really happens to folks when they end up in these echo chambers, when they are kind of motivated to get attention for sometimes these bizarre ideas and how far they're willing to go to pursue them. And so I, I don't think that we should expect a lot of events like we saw um, at the Capitol, you know, just earlier this month. Um, I, I would hope that that is an outlier, and I think that it will be. But I think it's an example of how committed these folks are, how motivated they are. And just imagine what that must mean in terms of how engaged they are on the internet to kind of spread rumors, to push narratives, to pursue an agenda. So it's honestly something that I think you know. Again, we're, we're seeing the culmination of it now. But if you look at the origins of this, I think you know these are groups that were forming uh, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, and so these things can take a long time to build. And so I think the important thing for everybody to remember is that what we should be on the lookout for is you know, what's coming next. What are the, uh, what's the next wave of underground groups or conspiracy theorists or whatever that we haven't been paying attention to, or we've been kind of casually dismissing who are they, because they actually have a lot of power on the internet and they'll, they'll increasingly start to wield that power as they, as they get attention, as they have success and as they, as they continue to grow. Talk to me a little bit, just your opinion. A lot of mainstream tech companies, Twitter, Amazon, whether it's web services or otherwise, a lot of them have been, some might say, censoring folks, uh, leaders in these groups. Some have been deplatformed altogether, like our, our former president. Do you think this even makes a difference at the end of the day, or does, is it just pop up somewhere else? Well, I think the, the research shows that it absolutely does make a difference. Um, I think debating about whether or not tech platforms should have the power to take as much action as they have to, uh, they're, you know, they're the gatekeepers to who has access to public discourse. And so that, that does give them an extraordinary amount of power to say, to basically decide who does and who doesn't have access to, to the public square. That said, so setting that debate aside about whether or not they should have that much power, the actions that the tech companies recently took to quote unquote, you know, deplatform certain folks, that 100% has an impact on the amount of uh, misinformation, disinformation, and degree of radicalization that happens on their platform. There are other consequences, though. So, you know, I think there's a there's a healthy argument to be had that 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 should be fairly surgical, because what happens is these folks are driven to spaces that that are uh, harder to track, um, harder to follow, even more homogenous. So I think what we've all seen is that now there's been kind of a fragmentation of a certain corner of the internet. Um, anybody who was involved in spreading misinformation about, you know, about the integrity of the election, a, a vast majority of those users have been removed from mainstream social platforms, where by participating in those platforms, they were exposed to all sorts of other users. Everybody was able to observe the information that they were spreading. Um, and we were able to kind of see those ideas almost like being lobbed into the public square and then everybody can debate and everybody can fight and everybody can argue. And when that is taken away, now those folks are in more closed, isolated spaces where they're only talking to each other. They're only reinforcing each other's ideas. And what happens, I mean, that's, that's basically the pattern of radicalization. When people end up in closed information spaces with no access to outside ideas, then they tend to reinforce what they already believe and those beliefs become stronger those beliefs become kind of more fringe. There's a kind of an academic concept called the Overton window, which basically means like, you know, what's normal? If you're in the window, that's what's normal for you. And you tend to base your normality on 
people to your right and people to your left. Um, you see those people as a little bit fringe and you see yourself as being in the main, in the normal. And so th what happens in, if you're only surrounded by other people who have extreme or fringe conspiracy theories or political beliefs, then it's, it's pretty easy for your Overton window to shift. And at that point, you, you become a little bit dislodged from reality. And so there, there are consequences for driving folks into spaces where they don't have access to any other information. And the sorts of conspiracy theories that they're spreading or the ideas that they're spreading, almost there's no sunlight on those ideas. Um, so nobody else kind of knows that they're going on. And so there, there are pros and cons. But I think the one thing that is we can all be clear about is that research does pretty clearly point to the idea that um, removing this type of content from a mainstream space does reduce access to it. It improves the quality of discourse on a, on a particular social media platform, um, and it reduces the spread of that, whatever misinformation that was removed. So pros and cons. I mean, most of that sounds good uh, with the exception of the, <laughs> uh, those that stay with it, uh, becoming more and more, uh, rigid in their views and isolated. Interesting. I mean, it, it the inverse is true, I guess, as well. Those, you know, folks that are still on the public platforms, we don't have the awareness to these other views either. Yeah, it is tough. And I think it's important to remember that, especially now, and, and, and this has been true for a while, but especially now that as we continue to think about this problem and its implications, that there really is an ecosystem. It's almost like a, like you could think about it like a supply chain or like a food chain of information. And the type of information that tends to spread on the internet is the information that's the most provocative. So it's the most, usually the most extreme the, the most bizarre, you know, the, the types of things that capture people's attention, right? Because at the end of the day, the social internet is kind of an attention economy. So, and groups that have, are isolated, are, are more fringe, their, their window has shifted, tend to produce the most provocative, sensational content. And those groups tend to have access to individuals who are like a bridge. They have almost like one foot in the mainstream and one foot on the periphery. And those folks can take those provocative, extreme, warped ideas and narratives, and they introduce those to the mainstream. And because the mainstream is pretty hungry for those warped ideas, then they, they tend to have a life, they tend to get a lot of engagement. And so kind of understanding that chain from the periphery to these, these gatekeepers or these bridges, and then into the mainstream is kind of part of how the ecosystem works. And so even as these groups get removed from a space like Twitter, their ideas still get introduced, the mechanics are just a little bit different. Well, and those bridges, it's reminding me of a concept I think we talked about with Lisa, which is those, those bridges can be amplifiers of the message, essentially, like helping them spread wide and far, right? At Yonder, we, we, call, we give those groups a name, like we call them factions. And factions have different roles. And so there might be factions that we, we would say that they originate a narrative. And that means they, they kind of come up with it, basically. They, they, it might be that it's their, their take on a news cycle or you know, they come up with a, a meme or some talking points or a framing of an idea. And then these amplifier factions are the ones that can be a bridge between a fridge community and the more mainstream. And, and usually, you know, these are folks who have, a, who have some cachet on social media. Um, they maybe have a, a blue checkmark accounts, but not with huge followings. They probably don't have a platform of their own. They're just, you know, kind of popular within a particular community on social media. But those are exactly the types of users who are followed by more mainstream media personalities, mainstream journalists who are always on the hunt for stories. They're always trying to figure out like, who are the experts? Who's really obsessed with this issue? Who has their pulse on public opinion? And because those journalists turn to those provocative social media thought leaders to shape their thinking, that, that's what really builds that connection. And of course, you know, a, a media personality has a, has a platform of their own independent of social media. And so they introduce ideas to the public all the time. That's their job. And so that's, you really can 
create a direct link between these different actors. And it's because no one faction can do all of it on their own. And that actually makes this transaction pretty opaque. It's hard for any individual social media user to understand like where a narrative came from, whose agenda is behind that narrative, who wanted you to see it, why is it so important to them? And because that's opaque, I think that's where it starts to feel misleading. That's where it starts to feel a little bit manipulative. Frankly, even when that's not the intention, the intention of the factions involved, it's kind of like a, a system that's inherently where the, the, the way in which these uh, transactions happen is just, it's just not very clear to the everyday user. And that's really what we're here to try and identify and, and give folks the understanding that they need so that they can be better consumers of information on the internet. Well, we've been talking a lot about radicalization and, um, and a little bit about how that takes place. But, you know, in our previous conversation, I think, I think we hit on this notion that like all radicalization, it's not necessarily a negative thing. Like, I know that sounds counterintuitive to probably listeners, but can you help expound on that? Because like, if I'm a brand, right, like I want radical fans, I want radical fans of me and my product. I definitely, um, I think that that's, that's the right way to, to think about it. I will say that radicalization is a, is a term of art <laughs> and, yeah. and, and it means something bad. <laughs> so we should, we should be clear that, you know, like actual radicalization, when people are driven to violence because of an extreme point of view, that's not something that anybody wants. However, I think the point you're, you're making that is absolutely right is that the way that people get attention for their ideas on the internet is basically by caring about it more than anybody else and being willing to put in the work to rally a bunch of their friends or rally an online community and kind of obsessively engage with that idea over and over and over again. There's a joke that Twitter is won by he who is offended first. Obviously, you know, it's a little silly, but like, I think what it means is that whoever cares the most is the person who ultimately wins a social media conversation because there's a lot to be said about just overwhelming the other argument with sheer volume, like and just kind of brute force. So people who are really passionate about an idea behave in kind of the same way. They're really passionate. They're kind of obsessive. And I think in a lot of ways, it mimics movie character fandoms or sports fandoms. or And, and I think the dynamics of social media kind of encourage this behavior. And so uh, it's become pretty common for people to find an interest, find a, a community of people on the internet who shares that interest, even if it's really niche. And then because it's exciting to find a bunch of people who share your niche interest, you tend to geek out with those people all the time and they become a really important part of your life and they become your community and y'all geek out together. And that that is a really rich community for a brand that's trying to build authentic relationships with people who are passionate about the same stuff as they are. So, you know, if you're a toy maker uh, and, and you're making a, a board game about zombies, you want to find people who are obsessed with board games and obsessed with zombies, because those are the people who are going to evangelize for the same stuff that you are. You probably share a lot of the same ideas, same passions. You think the same stuff is cool. Um, and that's true kind of no matter what. You might be a brand whose part of your values is sustainability or part of your brand values is, you know, reducing cost because you're all about, you know, helping working class families or whatever, whatever your values are as your brand, there's a community out there who is equally as obsessed with that issue and they share your point of view. And so whoever that online community is, because of their passion and their obsession, they will set the talking points for that conversation on the internet. They care about it more than anybody else. And so they're going to they're gonna set the frame. And so I think it's just something that brands have to be aware of that there's some extreme cases where the groups are 
are bad actors, where we're talking about people who are intentionally manipulative, or we're talking about groups who have been radicalized and they're potentially dangerous. That, of course, nobody wants, everybody is concerned about that. And everybody needs, I think, to to consider how a group like that might impact a conversation about their brand. But then there's this whole other group of people who are just huge super fans of an idea. And, and those are the people I think who can really be the allies for brands if, if you communicate with them thoughtfully and authentically. And I think that's kind of a fun, like reinforcing factor with all this is that there's a, I'm not sure if I can use a PG-13 language on your podcast, but we'll say there's a- Oh yeah, you can, you can. Th- these groups have uh, kind of a low threshold for bullshit. And so and it's actually a, a really great way to- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Almost like hold brands accountable for communicating authentically and living their values because you're now, there's a group of people online who are going to set the conversation. They're going to set the talking point, set the frame for this thing that you care a lot about. So if you wade into that conversation and you are full of shit, you're going to get called on that big time. (laughs) And it it really will backfire. And so I think it really encourages brands to think about how can I authentically and empathetically communicate my values and and how can I live by it? Like I got to, I got to back that up with more than just words. And I I think it's, it's actually kind of a cool side of this that I think people are only just starting to understand, but I'm hopeful that as we get better about removing these negative aspects of this agenda driven internet and, and making these online communities safer and more authentic, that, we'll discover the fun side of this. The fact that it really is an opportunity for people to connect based on their passions and the things that they are kind of most excited about where they really geek out. But we're not there yet, but I, I do think there's, I'm, I'm optimistic that that's where the future is. It does sound like, I mean, it's essentially building little subcultures that you probably already participate in in some form or fashion. I've shared with listeners in the past, like I'm a CrossFitter. And so that's a very passionate group of people. (laughs) Some people might say are crazy, but I could talk about that all day. And uh, it makes sense, you know, finding your people. And if you're a marketer and you have a product for that subculture or group of people that um, have the same shared interest, like it's kind of a goldmine if you can find them and connect with them in the right way. As you, you know, work with marketers and companies like and, uh, and other brand leaders, how do you advise them on what they should be focused on and, and what are the implications as they tread into this environment? Well, you know, I, I think there's there's something that there's a there's a trend that we're seeing a lot and that there's there's marketing, there's there's brand marketing. But what we're talking about here where you're really communicating your brand's purpose um, you're communicating your brand's values. You're thinking about how your policies, the public statements of your executives, the policies that you have with your employees, like how, how do those values really permeate your organization? 
that's really a, a different function. Um, and the folks who are taking responsibility for that, and, and by the way, also taking responsibility for the brand's reputation, are like corporate communications, public affairs, issues teams. Like, and, and these are folks who have a really different way of thinking about how communication works. Um, a lot of them come from environments where they were engaged in advocacy or folks who used to work in politics. Like, there's a way to think about communication that says, hey, we have a point of view and um, we need to find allies who share our point of view because there's strength in numbers, there's strength in networks. And so how they think about it is like, we need to go build coalitions of people um, so we might go find prominent industry thought leaders or academics or public figures and celebrities, or we might find politicians, influencers in the media, like who cares about this problem and shares our point of view. And we want to build a network of those folks because we want our narrative to, we want to frame this conversation. We want to do it in concert with people who share our values and share our point of view. And we kind of want to like take an idea or take a narrative to market kind of an interesting way to see the world. And of course, there's networks of people who are on your side and there's networks of people who don't agree with you. And and they're basically having like, they're like playing high school debate, <laughs> if that makes sense. But but in in public discourse, because ultimately they want to, they want to win hearts and minds. They want their, they think their ideas are the best and they want to you know position their narratives out in the world. And that's a really different way of thinking about communications than I think marketers and brand marketers do. But I think it's really valuable in this environment. And so as, as these teams kind of become more prominent in the enterprise, as they have more responsibility, as, as brands become increasingly conscious of the value of their reputation, they really are turning to these teams who have these frameworks for thinking about communication. And I think that applies really well to this model of the internet where it's much more agenda driven than it might at first appear. And so once you understand that the internet is, the social internet anyway, is a bunch of agenda driven groups kind of fighting for attention, then it starts to look a lot more like regular communication. <laughs> it starts to look a lot more like high school debate club. And so there's an opportunity to identify these agenda-driven groups, factions who have an adversarial position, who, who don't agree with you, who don't share your values, who and who are advocating for an agenda that potentially could be damaging to your reputation. And at the same time, there's factions out there who share your values, who are passionate about the same things as you are, and, and they can really be allies. It's almost like thinking of these groups as like first-class stakeholders, as they can be members of your coalition. Um, and that's a, that's a really new way of thinking about it. But it's a trend that we're seeing just because you have to deal with the reality of the modern internet. You kind of have to deal with the fact that corporations are expected to communicate their values in kind of a divisive environment. These teams that are responsible for doing it have a bunch of existing frameworks and playbooks for doing this really well. But it's a, it's a different way of thinking about communication, but it's something that we're seeing leading brands really lean into as they're thinking about how they how they how they build affinity with their with their consumers. I really like this concept of coalition building and to your point it probably is more natural to communications or external relations type person in the marketing world I think it's a brand new concept frankly and you know I think we we think about influencers potentially third party endorsers uh, depending on what industry you might be in I don't think we think of about groups of individuals as being de potential defenders in the public square. But I, I think it's a really important concept. I'm glad you brought it up. And, you know, it, it makes you think a little bit broader. This is probably not fair to my fellow marketers, but I think we tend to think that we control everything that goes out. And I know that's not, we all know that's not true in the end. But if you take this partnership approach where you've got a coalition that you're building or you're building a coalition, you've got partners in the ecosystem, it's much more powerful to your point. 
but it takes a shift in mindset to say that we can't do this alone as a brand by ourselves. We have to look for partners. We have to look for the, and build the coalition, almost like a United Nations, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it feels a little bit like diplomacy with internet subcultures. And, and I can understand why it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable. And I, I think it's been an evolution over a long time. And I think it's, it's a difference of thinking about the uh, social internet as a as like a broadcast medium, you know, where it's it's another place where you can define an audience and message to that audience and measure the effectiveness of a campaign. And of course, that's true. Like, that's absolutely a valuable thing that marketers can do on the internet. But at the same time, it doesn't fit quite so neatly into that paradigm, for better, or for worse, right? There's other agendas at play. And, and I think, as everybody has recognized, 30 people with enough passion for an idea can get just as much attention for that idea as a brand spending millions and millions and millions of dollars campaigning on the social internet. They, they really are, in a weird way, peers in this space. And so I think they almost have to be treated with diplomacy. They can't just be brushed aside. And that's a, a remarkable thing about the social internet, but also, of course, in some cases, kind of a dangerous thing about the social internet. It's not always a good thing that a, a relatively small fringe point of view can capture so much of the public's attention. But nevertheless, it's it's the internet that we asked for, and it's the internet that we have. And so I think we just have to we have to deal with the reality that's in front of us. Yeah, it's a great point. And we've covered stories on this podcast that have been propagated by those those small groups with a very loud, very passionate voice. One, one example which caught fire again, like a year after the release of the episode was we, we did an episode with a former marketer at Uber about their Uber ad fraud case. And that whole ad fraud case was discovered, like the, was discovered by a small group called Sleeping Giants that went out and kind of monitored activity of different groups, you know, where their ads were showing up and things like that. And they protested essentially uh, that Uber was advertising on places like Breitbart and Uber finally investigated and found that their ads were getting through programmatic landscape and ultimately found uh, elements of fraud. But it, it can have great outcomes as well, right? Like reducing fraud, making us be more conscious of what we say and what we do. There's so many, there, there's positive elements to it as well. Oh, of course. And I think one of the reasons I think that there's so much focus on the, the unintended consequences now is because for the longest time, I think those of us who were there at the early, <laughs> you know, for the, for the early social internet, I think have really advocated in some cases quite naively that there is, there's really so much opportunity on a social internet that treats everybody the same. And in a lot of ways, that's been, it's been revolutionary. I still am passionately believed in the, in the idea of wisdom of the crowd and, and the best ideas will kind of rise to the top based on their inherent quality and everybody kind of votes with their online behavior. And, and there's something really pure in that and that, and, and I think a lot of times that's been true, like people who haven't had the resources or the background or whatever traditionally associated with high profile success have been able to build success for themselves by being just compelling and interesting on the internet. And so there's a lot of really great examples of that from social movements to, you know, to individual entertainers. And there is this downside that we've discovered uh, more recently, or that I think has come to light more recently, which I think is getting a lot of attention. But you bring up a really good point. This is a situation where we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think on the whole, we can say that there's just a huge amount of just value in the, in the degree to which people can connect with each other and, and share ideas as freely as we've been able to over the past 20 or 25 years. 
It's a really important concept as you think about brands or leaders of companies that are trying to speak out on specific issues and just the reminder that one, <laughs> if it's bullshit, they'll smell it and, <laughs> and call you out. And two, make sure you've got a coalition that can help defend you in those environments as well. I don't know if you if you have any additional advice. I mean, those I'm pulling out from what you said before, but taking a stand can be a very tricky thing in the environment that we live in right now. Taking a stand can be complicated, but it's essential. There's no, I think gone are the days that brands can sit on the sidelines. And so hopefully that instead of being daunting, I hope is liberating. And the advice that we always give is that if you are authentic, if you're kind of clear eyed and communicating your values and you take a stand, you will absolutely have allies who will stand behind you and, and champion you for having so much conviction. And you will absolutely have detractors. And knowing that going in, knowing that you inevitably you'll have detractors and, and that's something that you can live with is important. Um, and then, and again, like hopefully that leads to the inevitable conclusion that there's kind of no point in taking half measures. There's no point in watered down messaging. There's, you actually end up getting, you can find yourself in the worst of all scenarios. If you wade into a controversial topic and you take a, a stand without conviction, then people will call bullshit on you. You won't have any allies. And the very people who you're trying to inspire um, and get, get excited about it and, and, and get on your side will actually, will turn on you for, for your kind of lack of credibility and lack of authenticity. And so it's a, hopefully it's a whole system that ultimately um, incentivizes more authentic behavior, even though I think in the interim, I think what we've seen is a lot of people um, engaging in more kind of inauthentic communication on, on social media. Like there's a real spotlight on inauthentic social media. But I think at the end of the day, I think the system matures into something that really does reward authentic communication, uh, regardless of what the issue is and, and kind of regardless of what the implied politics or the whatever that it doesn't really matter. Whatever that point of view is, I think as long as you have a clear idea of what you're trying to what you're trying to communicate there's a real opportunity. We could talk about this all day. I want to switch gears and ask you a series of questions that I tend to ask most of my guests that come on, if not all. And it kind of helps us get to know you a little bit, turn the tables back to marketing towards the end. But my first question, which is my most favorite question to ask is, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Wow. I love that question. Um, I mean, of course, the, the truth is there are so many experiences, I think, that have ultimately shaped who I am. Maybe one of the uh, foundational thing is that I, I had the, the great privilege of being part of international communities when I was younger. Um, so adolescence and early adulthood. And being part of a, a community where there are people from all over the world, people who come from experiences in, in countries that are unstable, um, in democracies that are unstable in countries that aren't democracies at all. Uh, you know, countries, people who come from countries that for the longest time growing up in the US had been labeled, you know, quote unquote, bad guy countries, like in our culture here. And then of course, people from parts of the world that where we share a lot of cultural similarities, you know, but those environments are such interesting, like melting pots of ideas. I think it breaks down a lot of barriers and it really encourages people to see past the superficial exterior and, and really understand how to empathize with people on a human level. And I don't know. I think it really changed the trajectory of who I am as a person, being in an environment that almost like out of necessity encouraged everybody to, to really reach out and connect with one another as people. So that's probably been pretty foundational to everything that I've, I've really pursued or valued since then. 
what advice would you give your younger self if you're starting all over again? <laughs> I think this is probably echoed by a lot of folks, but I think that there's probably no one moment that is as important or as impactful as it seems at the time. And really the best thing, the thing that most reliably leads to success is just perseverance. <laughs> just being willing to, to get up and, and, and push the rock a little bit further up the hill every day is a much more reliable formula for success than luck or a lightning strike or you know a moment of great inspiration. So maybe not to take any one event too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> just soldier on, so to speak. <laughs> maybe, yeah. And then maybe be a little bit zen about it. You know what I mean? Like it's less of a grind. It's kind of more about the everyday journey than it is about any one point. You sound like a uh, stoic or a stoicism <laughs> uh, prophet. <laughs> Be water, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about it quite like that, but I like it. I like it. I'm, I'm working on it. Cool. This next question, a little silly, but I, I like asking because occasionally I get really good ideas to go buy things to support our consumer economy. <laughs> Curious if there's been an impactful purchase of $100 or less for you in the last six to 12 months. Well, given the environment that we're in, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I scored a really inexpensive set of weights. <laughs> and this was never something that was part of my life. I was kind of active, but not really. But, you know, I had a little bit of extra time and there's really no place to go. You know, a lot of the stuff that I used to do to kind of keep active aren't available during a, during a pandemic. And I think it's been a, it's been a fun discovery, like a new way to be active and engaged that I think has kind of opened my mind to a different way of staying active than before. Uh, so that's been that's been a lot of fun, which isn't particularly consumery. Oh, you know what? I will say even more than that. Sorry, can I have two things? Is that okay? Am yeah, absolutely. So I and I noticed it because it's right here in front of me. Like a lot of people, I got pretty obsessed with chess after watching The Queen's Gambit. So I'm, I and I, I think that was the most watched show ever on Netflix. So I am definitely not alone in this. So for Christmas, I bought my dad a chess set, like a physical chess set. And I got one for myself. And these are cheap, like, you know, cheap cardboard plastic pieces, chess sets, because neither of us really play. And so we've been like texting each other chess moves and moving the chess pieces in front of us. And there's just something about the like physically moving pieces and having a chance to, you know, communicate a few times a day, even though we, we live in different states and aren't, you know, spending a lot of time together traveling because of the pandemic. It's been super fun. I highly recommend it. I think I spent $30. And well, now I'm spending more because I had to get books on chess strategy because he's kicking my ass. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's been a super fun thing to do i've never thought about that that sounds amazing because it's also like a constant reminder that there's an ongoing game you know right in front of you that's a really good idea so i have to ask one question about the weights because you already know I'm a, <laughs> I'm a crossfit junkie but like is it a bench with weights or is it like dumbbells kettlebells i'm just curious what you got it's actually been a little bit of an evolution. So that is not the way that I kept myself fit. Like I've, I've never been, and I, I have no, I, this is with no judgment. I say this, but like, I'm not a meathead. Like I'm not a big guy, you know, and my brother is though. So he's a, my brother is a, a, a SWAT officer. He's a big dude. My wife jokes that he's like Gaston from the, from the Beauty and the Beast. not in personality. He's not the same, but he's like, a, he's a big guy. I've been keeping in touch and trying to get advice. And, and so he's been slowly helping me upgrade as I get kind of more into this. So I started out with like a couple of dumbbells and, and, and now, now I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, I feel kind of like a, a, a trope, like nineties suburban dad, with a little workout gym in my garage, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I had to, I had to upgrade. So, uh, uh, yeah, I've got a, a, a cage, you know, and a rack and, you know, weights are getting a little bigger. So yeah, I'm having fun with it. It's been, 
<laughs> sort of fun outlet. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, who knew lifting heavy things? I know, I know. And it, people don't, I it, I could geek out for this for a long time, but they don't realize that like the weight, the resistance is is a great form of exercise. Like, I mean, you need both cardio and resistance, whether it's weights or just isometric or something like that. But like you, you need that to stay alive, keep your blood pumping and I don't know, stay vital. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been kind of cool. So I, I, I don't know that it'll get to the point of um, uh, me taking it too seriously. I, I'll, I'll lift just enough that I'm not scared I'm going to hurt myself alone in my garage, you know. But uh, no, it, it's, it's been a really fun outlet. And uh, yeah, I can, I can definitely see the appeal of folks who really get into it. Well, uh, two more questions, more on the marketing front. Just curious if there's brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think in a lot of ways over the years, you know, I have I've developed like affinities with brands that just kind of resonate with me or whatever, but I actually do have a lot of respect for brands who are willing to come out and take a strong position in an environment like this. And, 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 you know, I, I take all of the the cynicism along with it. I, I get the idea that like conscious capitalism is, is uncomfortable for, for folks. And, and, and I, like, I get that. I, I kind of feel the same way. Nevertheless, like if choosing between being a a brand that has no values and has no compass and and a brand that does even if the way that those values get expressed is a little bit cynical and it's ultimately self-interested i i guess i'd still choose the self-interested cynical and values-based brand <laughs> given everything in front of us so I, I really do have a lot of respect for for brands that are willing to to take that risk and and operate with that conviction um, especially in this environment so in, and i think all of us can bring to mind examples of brands that have taken a strong position on social justice, brands that have asserted that they stand behind like our, our democratic processes. You know, like there's a, I think there's some things that are really important right now. It's a pretty volatile moment. Um, and so the ones that have been willing to step into the fray and make their voice heard and hopefully be kind of a voice of reason in a pretty chaotic time, I have a lot of respect for that. Last question for you. What do you feel like is the either largest opportunity or threat that marketers face today? We talked a little about this um, before. I, I guess I just reiterate, hopefully without being too repetitive, that um, I, I really do think the biggest opportunity for marketers is to, is to adopt this idea of coalition building. I think that's not easy. I don't think it, it's not as quick. Um, we don't yet have the tools to measure it nearly to the degree that we do um, in normal kind of paid messaging campaigns through the usual channels, like that not all the infrastructure is there. But I really do think it's the future of building of community building, coalition building. I think that as as we take this idea that consumers have an affinity with a brand or they, they buy into a brand and its idea and they, they kind of share values with that brand and that's what really draws them to it. I think this is the next evolution of that. Um, and so I think there's huge opportunity for brands that are willing to get out there and take that risk and, and do it well. And I think marketers will be really amazing partners in that. I think there's some brands doing it well and and the ones that do like I said, I think there's a big opportunity for that for the brands that are uh, are leaders in that over the next probably over the next decade. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation, and um, it's uh, it's eye opening, especially this notion that we were just talking about coalition building. It's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, 
please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.